Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And as you could probably tell from the sound of my voice, no, I am not narrating a golf or other classy sporting event. I've just had a heck of a week here at the Hogue Law Firm. And frankly, I've got a respiratory illness that has been kicking my butt, which I'm assured is not the one you might be otherwise concerned with. But Nevertheless, I wanted to get a video out there. There's been a lot of stuff happening in the industry and outside of it. And I thought this would be a good test case because it is important and it does follow on with one of our longest playlists on this channel, an antitrust epic. Now, if you haven't been following this story from the beginning or even in the last couple of months, that's okay. All you really need to know for purposes of this video is that Epic won one count of the lawsuit it brought against Apple. And by winning that one count, the court enjoined attempted to prevent Apple from enforcing one sentence in its App Store guidelines. And that sentence related to preventing developers from having a line, a link, metadata in their app description, sending people outside of the App Store iOS environment in order to buy things like V-Bucks. What it didn't do was allow people to have their own stores, to offer their own payment solutions in the app itself, but... Folks have still referred to it as a pretty massive outcome, and how that outcome actually is realized is going to depend a lot on what Apple chooses to do with the injunction. Now, they appealed that injunction. They're appealing that loss at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but before that, because they would otherwise have to implement this change within 90 days from the court's original decision, so early to mid-December at this point in time, they said, we're going to ask for a stay, a pause on that injunction. And as you can probably tell, from the thumbnail, they have lost that particular request. Now, that's not that unusual. We'll talk about why in just a second, but it has been getting reported with a little bit more substance than I would like to see because Apple hasn't exhausted its potential remedies yet. Let's look at this headline from Paul Tassi. Apple forced to comply with massive App Store Fortnite ruling. And again, you see this kind of reference to forced to comply. The district court has denied their request but they aren't the last people that get to talk on this. Also note that Paul refers to this as a massive ruling when one of the things that the court continues to hit is that it's not massive. It's just small. We're not doing big things here and you shouldn't be fighting it. So let's talk about why this is kind of a problem in any instance, not just with Apple, not just with big companies. It's because of the nature of what you're asking the district court to do. So if you imagine this, district court has your trial in May. She's listening to Apple. She's listening to Epic. By the time the decision comes out, we know she's not thrilled with either of them or the way that they run their businesses, but she spends all summer writing an almost 200-page opinion to get to the results that she puts forth in that document. And then just a couple of months later, Apple turns around and says, no, that's wrong. And we would like you to rule that you're probably wrong in order to give us this stay. This is awkward, or as a law review article I found on this topic describes it, it's general awkwardness. As this review article says, with some exceptions, the federal rules require an applicant to first ask the district court for a stay. Applying Neekin means evaluating whether the applicant is likely to be successful on appeal, which is the same as asking the district court whether it is likely to get reversed on appeal. Hopefully, no district court will likely think that the decision it just made and that it dwelled on is likely to be reversed. Even if the district court has some thought that the decision could be reversed, surely it believes that its decision is correct. 
to the extent that it would be unable to conclude that the applicant has made a strong showing of its likelihood of success on the merits of the appeal, which is one of the requirements for granting this stay that we'll take a look at in the documents. And I have to say, that makes total sense to me. And unfortunately, finding statistics on these particular issues is very, very difficult. They don't seem to be kept in a generalized way like some of the other things we refer to in the space. I'll talk about that more when we get towards the end of this video. But suffice to say, you have to go and you have to tell the judge why you think they're wrong. Or as I covered in this episode, Apple appeals and explains why, you get a whole set of descriptions from Apple trying to be nice to the court. Apple asks the court to suspend the requirements of its injunction. The company understands and respects the court's concerns, but also we think you got it really wrong. And they make a number of arguments here that you can definitely check out that earlier video to hear me talk about with a little bit better version of my voice. But suffice to say, it still comes down to that considered opinion you made is wrong. Which leads us to the court's determination just a few days ago in which the court denied Apple's request. It says the court is in receipt of Apple Inc.'s motion to stay, part of the court's injunction pending resolution of all appeals, specifically that portion prohibiting developers from including in their apps and their meta buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct customers to purchasing mechanisms in addition to in-app purchasing. Having considered all the filings and oral argument, the court finds Apple has failed to satisfy its burden and the request as framed is denied. In short, Apple's motion is based on a selective reading of this court's findings and ignores all of the findings which supported the injunction, namely incipient antitrust conduct, including super competitive commission rates resulting in extraordinarily high operating margins and which have not been correlated to the value of its intellectual property. This incipient antitrust conduct is the result in part of the anti-steering policies which Apple has enforced to harm competition. Further, even if additional time was warranted to comply with the limited injunction, Apple did not request additional time other than 10 days to appeal this ruling. So one of the things that the court here is suggesting that Apple could have done is they could have said, all right, we want a stay for another even six months, but we're not going to ask for a stay for forever, which is what they're effectively asking the district court when they say we want to stay pending the results of our appeal. Now, Apple's argument here is essentially that we're going to have to upturn the Apple cart to some extent if we go through with this. This is not the same as a negative injunction, and I'll talk about that more in a little bit. The court came to their reasoned decision over months of consideration, and so is not terribly compelled by Apple's argument here. The court puts forth the standard that we looked at a little bit in the earlier article. It says the court analyzes the motion using a four-factor test to determine whether a stay is appropriate, namely whether the movement, that's Apple here, demonstrates a strong showing of likelihood of success on the merits. So it's a pretty high standard. You have to convince the district court that they were really wrong. Two, the movement would be irreparably injured absent a stay. Three, issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding. And four, an evaluation of where the public interest lies. Apple bears the burden of demonstrating that the court should exercise its discretion to stay the injunction. So Apple has to come in and say, you're wrong. The court of appeals is going to find for us. We'd be really hurt if you didn't grant this to us. The issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding, or more specifically, I think will not for purposes of this particular consideration and an evaluation where the public interest lies, that the public interest is in favor of not having this injunction go forward, which I think is maybe the epic side of the argument's best stance here. 
Let's talk about what the court says here. It says, contrary to Apple's assertions, the court evaluated the UCL claims using two tests and not one. Here is noted the anti-steering provisions are one of the key provisions upon which Apple has been able to successfully charge super competitive commissions untethered to its intellectual property. And the weird part about this is that this is in the findings of fact. We went over this. That's my two and a half hour video. You can definitely check that out. It's called The Decision. But the court really has to stretch for findings of facts and determinations on this particular question because neither of the parties were really aimed at it. The anti-steering provisions were not the focal point of Epic's bringing of the case, were not the focal point of Apple's defense because Epic really wasn't targeting him that hard. And then the judge interjected in a number of areas and asked for more on this anti-steering concept, which got into a discussion of American Express and other cases that relate to that. And then the court just kind of determines that the anti-steering provisions led directly to extra profits at Apple. It's the kind of thing that I do think has a possibility of being overturned, not the least of which because you've got a California law, very flexible, very amorphous, and the applicability of that law is going to rest in the minds of the various judges that are going to be listening to all of this. That said, it's no surprise that the judge doesn't suddenly find herself looking at the page and saying, oh, you know what? Apple's right. Evidence admitted at trial demonstrates that Epic Games and its related companies receive royalties from numerous companies who use the Unreal Engine for apps. Apple's commission rates depress those royalties and suppress competition in the industry generally and in which Epic Games operates. This is sufficient to establish Article 3 standing. So one of the things that Apple argued was that because Epic lost almost every part of the case and because the result of losing every part of the case meant that the court said Apple could terminate any of Epic's accounts with Apple, that meant that Epic no longer had standing to enforce these things, the injunction in particular, because Epic and Fortnite aren't on the store and don't look like they're going to be on the store anytime soon. The court shifts gears here and says effectively that Epic is affected by this because it receives royalties from folks that use the Unreal Engine in their apps and that Apple having commission rates at all generally depresses the money which Epic makes for having Unreal sales, which is interesting because it's pretty attenuated, not the least of which because if you look at the license that Epic has for its Unreal Engine, you don't get to credit yourself for Apple's fees. The royalty is based on gross revenue from end users, regardless of whether you sell your product to end users directly, self-publish via the App Store or any similar store, or work with a publisher. If your product, for instance, earns $10 on the App Store, Apple may pay you seven, having deducted 30% as a distribution fee, but your royalty to Epic would still be 5% of $10 or 50 cents. So when you're looking at this and the court says, well, Epic is directly negatively affected, it's not so direct. It's the question of, does Apple's 30% at all prevent folks from even having Unreal Engine-based apps in the store? And that depresses their fees because otherwise Unreal isn't counting them against the money that the developer is otherwise paying. So Unreal could change their rules there. Epic could change their rules, but essentially Epic doesn't have to according to the court here. So lots of interesting little bits. Next, the court addresses Apple's claim of irreparable injury. I actually think this is probably Apple's best argument. Again, the evidence does not support Apple's position. Apple focuses part of its irreparable harm argument on harm that could occur in the form of loss of trust and integrity in the iOS ecosystem by way of allowing developers to include their links and meta buttons in their apps. 
Apple's arguments are exaggerated. The reader rule, cross-play, and cross-wallet all reflect trial examples that alternatives outside the app can be accommodated. The declaration provided by Apple does not change the result. In most ways, he merely repeats arguments that the court considered as part of its order. And that's kind of standard when you have one of these documents, right? The court thought about this, that the injunction may require additional engineering or guidelines is not evidence of irreparable injury. Rather, at best, it only suggests that more time is needed to comply. And the reason I think that Apple has its best case here with irreparable injury and to some extent with a showing of likelihood of success on the merits is that if you think about what this injunction is doing, it is a positive injunction. It's not a negative injunction. Compare it, if you will, to the injunction that survived throughout the course of the trial. And that injunction prevented Apple from kicking the unreal accounts that Epic holds on iOS off of the store. That Apple kicked Fortnite off immediately. Apple threatened to kick the unreal accounts off of the store immediately. Epic got an injunction for the course of the trial. It said Apple doesn't have the power to get rid of those accounts while this trial is ongoing. Apple's win on most of the accounts ultimately gave it that power back at the end of the trial. But that injunction doesn't really change anything from the status quo. When you think about negative and positive injunctions, think about where the status quo lives. In that particular case, Fortnite was already off the store. Apple was threatening to take Unreal accounts off the store. Essentially, the injunction just paused everything. Said, no, no, you can't do anything more. Fortnite off is fine. You can't kick off Unreal Engine stuff. Let's go forward from there. This injunction affects change, requires a difference in the status quo. When you have that, I think you'll see more courts be willing to grant a stay on that. I think you've got a better chance at the circuit court level of saying, okay, whoa, 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 let's pause, let's hold the status quo while we look at this issue of supreme significance and we'll hold that status quo until we get a chance to actually opine on this ourselves. Otherwise, the alternative to that is that Apple is forced to do this thing, however it looks, whatever Apple has to do, changing its guidelines, affecting additional screens and engineering, whatever else they're going to do to actually allow this on their side of things, they're going to have to do that before the appeals are heard. And now if we pretend that we know in a couple of years that Apple wins their appeal, it's very difficult to unring that bell. They've expended those resources. They've set expectations. They've got lock in with things that they never wanted to do that were forced upon them. And if Apple wins the appeal, which you don't have to agree to at this point in time, you can see how actually having to go forward with this particular activity probably is pretty irreparable injury just on a business model basis. And the court doesn't want to hear that. That's fine. The court decided on this already. But I do think Apple has the strongest argument where they say, look, you're actually asking us to change something. And if we win, it's not going to give us the redress that we deserve from going through the legal system. The courts are often going to be pretty sensitive to that particular type of argument. If we can't give you compensation, if we can't make things whole for you, even though you won at every step, then there's a problem in the system. So I think they might have some success there. The third and fourth elements overlap, so the court addresses them collectively, injury to other parties in the public interest. The evidence from the trial revealed that the party who would benefit primarily from a stay pending all resolution of all appeals is Apple, sure. The court can envision numerous avenues for Apple to comply with the injunction and yet take steps to protect users, right? They can have additional screens, they can have blocks, they can say, hey, you're going off site, all these various things, to the extent that Apple genuinely believes that external links would create issues. The court is not convinced, but nor is it here to micromanage. 
Consumers are quite used to linking from an app to a web browser. Other than perhaps needing time to establish guidelines, Apple has provided no credible reason for the court to believe that the injunction would cause the professed devastation. Links can be tested by app review. Now, Apple, I think, actually made a much better argument on this to say, yes, links can be tested when they go through app review. Links that are outside our control can be changed two seconds after app review. And so they present a potential security problem that the court is essentially ignoring here because I think the anti-staring rules are bad and more power to the court for that. But they are also ignoring what I think are at least reasonable arguments that Apple has made in this respect. With respect to the alleged need for clarification, because anecdotally, some developers may not understand the scope of the injunction. Again, I think we're underselling this court. If you saw all those headlines, if you see actual developers going forward and saying, you can replace the app store now, once this goes through, it's not really anecdotal. The parties themselves have not indicated any confusion. And this is to Tim Sweeney's credit, right? We talk a lot about Tim Sweeney's tweets. At no point did he really tweet that we can just now avoid the 30% or other developers can avoid the 30% or you can get your own store on there. His original tweets when this all happened was that Epic had an almost total loss and that this was unfair and that they're lying about putting Fortnite back on the store and rah-rahing the Coalition for App Fairness, et cetera, et cetera. But he didn't put his foot in his mouth with respect to this specific issue, which would have provided Apple a silver bullet, I think, for this argument to say, look, even Epic's CEO is going out there with confusion on this point. So that's to his credit, I believe. The developer agreement prohibits third-party in-app purchasing systems other than Apple's IAP. Bold, in red. The court did not enjoin that provision, but rather enjoined the prohibition to communicate external alternatives and to allow links to those external sites. Apple still maintains the convenience of IAP and if it can compete on pricing, developers may opt to capitalize on that convenience, including any any reassurance that Apple provides to consumers that it may provide a safer or better choice. I highlighted if it can compete on pricing because that's an unnecessary proviso in this. This is why judges and courts don't usually go too deep on business models. Apple has any number of ways to compete with these links, one of which is actually set forth here, which is just convenience. You wouldn't have to compete on pricing at all necessarily if you're just more convenient. A lot of people are just not going to hit a link in the app. But you see the court continuing to bounce between this notion. The court, if I'm being honest, is actually making this ambiguity out there in the press with lines like this. It says, oh no, you're still allowed to run your own store, but maybe you have to compete on pricing. Although we also said you can take some money for your IP and you can audit people if you need to go get that money from links in your app. It gets very confusing as to what the court's even saying. I don't really blame the journalists and others that are confused about this. I'm hopeful that whatever winds up coming out of the Ninth Circuit, it's less confusing for all parties, Apple, Epic, and everybody else that's following it at the end of the day. But for right now, court says, nah, there's no confusion. I'm being very, very clear. The request for a 10-day extension to file an appeal to the Ninth Circuit is denied. Here, the court afforded Apple 90 days to comply, and it still has approximately 30 days before the injunction goes into effect. Thus, the court sees no need for an additional 10 days for Apple to file its appeal. Granting this extension would extend the deadline to the end of December, just before the December holidays, which itself is inconvenient. Inconvenient to who? We don't know. But the court wanted to dispatch with this in four pages or less. So what you see here is a reference to what I was talking about before, which is that Apple is almost certainly currently preparing an appeal document to the Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, why did they go through this seemingly doomed initiative to start out with? Well, as we looked at 
in that law review article, they were required to. A party must ordinarily move first in the district court for the following relief, a stay of the judgment or order of a district court pending appeal. A motion for the relief mentioned in what we just talked about may be made to the court of appeals or to one of its judges, but the motion must state that a motion having been made, the district court denied the motion or failed to afford the relief requested and state any reasons given by the district court for its action. A motion under this rule must be filed with the circuit court and would normally be considered by a panel, but in an exceptional case in which time requirements make that procedure impracticable, the motion may be made to and considered by a single judge. So in essence, and this is matched up in various places, especially on the government side of the law, you have to go and exhaust your ability to find other remedies. So you have to go to the district court first. The district court has to say no, which ordinarily they're going to do because they've considered this and they don't think you have success on the merits. And then, and only then, can you go and you can proceed to ask the circuit court for that stay that you're looking for. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this video, it's actually really hard to find data on how many times any given circuit has said, okay, yes, we'll grant that stay pending appeal. I found an article about the federal circuit, which I've put up here on our screens. It's, it's not great because the federal circuit is so unusual in its subject matter jurisdiction. But I think we can at least talk about what we're looking at here and, and why the Ninth Circuit might be more amenable than the district court. So this article says, as readers know, FRAP, that's your Federal Rules of Appellate Practice, I believe, or procedure, permits parties to seek an injunction or stay pending appeal. These motions are typically filed shortly after an appeal is docketed and are usually decided in short procurium orders before briefs are filed by the whole court, not big long opinions on this kind of thing. To get relief pending the entire appeal, movements, that's the apple again, must show a likelihood of success some immediate irreparable harm, that the balance of hardships favors the movement, and that the public interest would be served or at least not harmed by the interim relief. These motions are somewhat exotic in the sense that they don't happen all that often, but they're also important. Sometimes interim relief is a critical part of making an appeal really worth it, such as to prevent the launch of a competing product or to prevent the disclosure of confidential information. In other words, sometimes there's a bell that just can't be unrung. And I do think in this particular case, we're finding ourselves in that kind of position where Apple would have to go forward with this. Yes, you can imagine a world in which Apple wins and two years down the line takes it all back, whatever it is that they wound up doing in this period of time when they get their appeal win, if they do. But that would be very difficult for the business model of the company. And I do think they have a legitimate grievance as to how this actually would work on this 90-day time frame. Now, in this particular article, they found that... Movements got some relief, a stay of some kind, only 16.7% of the time, which of course puts you in the less than one in five category if this were for all circuits. I have a tendency to believe it's probably a little bit better in other circuits, but again, this research just simply isn't available for most cases. And if you actually look, the reason I think that is that when you look at these particular cases in the federal uh, circuit, you get a very specific set of cases, patent cases, government contracts, stay of entire proceedings, which is not what's happening here, disclosure of confidential information, pro se litigants not happening here, and then other, the federal circuit just isn't really the same as the other circuits in the United States. So while I suspect you do have a lot of instances where the court just says, let it go, this kind of loses some of the resolution as to which side of a stay actually enforces the status quo. I have no doubt in my mind that if however we can imagine it, the preliminary injunction in this case, 
which prohibited Fortnite from coming back on the store and prohibited Apple from removing the Unreal Engine stuff. If that survived all of this and the Ninth Circuit were looking at that, they'd probably not stay it. It would just stay the same because that is the status quo as it existed when it went into effect. This is an injunction of a different type. So the status quo really lives on the side of granting the stay. It just comes down to how the court is going to interpret these very equitable kind of things. Who has irreparable harm? What is the balance of hardships? Is Epic affected if this doesn't go into effect? If the injunction is stayed and Apple doesn't have to change its guidelines, how is Epic harmed? How is the public harmed? And having those conversations, as you could probably imagine, for those equitable types of determinations, the court could come out any given way. But I do think because the status quo is on the side of a stay, that the Ninth Circuit is still likely to grant it. But wait and see, Apple hasn't even filed that appeal with the circuit court yet. So it's gonna be pretty close in time to when they would have to implement any changes in any event. This has been a somewhat vocally constrained virtual legality. If you enjoy this stuff, if you enjoy conversations about the business and law of technology, video games, pop culture, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon and other ways to support us listed below. Otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends, upvoting, and downvoting. Every little bit helps. If you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.